I'm Rose Skeeters, host of From Borderline to Beautiful, a show about hope and recovery for BPD. Hello and welcome to another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. Today is part two of this three-part eating disorder series. I am going to talk briefly about treatments for eating disorders from a clinical and then a personal perspective. I'm also going to answer some listener questions. Next week, we'll tackle body dysmorphia and finish up with the questions that you guys have submitted. So last week, I recommended that if you are struggling with an eating disorder and borderline personality disorder, you would want to seek professional support to determine whether you need medical care and stabilization, as eating disorders can be life-threatening. Now, ideally, you would get treatment for both eating disorders and borderline personality disorder. But unfortunately, that isn't always possible. So let's look at the research and clinical side of things for a moment. So again, ideally, eating disorder treatment outside of a residential or hospital setting involves a therapist or psychologist who specializes in CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for eating disorders. A medical provider as well would be on this treatment team, and they would be monitoring vitals and weight. And we would also want a nutrition coach or a nutritionist to help with meal plan formulation. We would also want all of these providers to be experts in the field of disordered eating, eating disorders, so that they're able to provide the most accurate, up-to-date treatment practice. CBT continues to be the most empirically supported or researched treatment for eating disorders. Remember again that CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. It works on the connection between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. This doesn't mean that there aren't other viable options. It actually just means that this has been the treatment that is the most researched and therefore found to be the most effective. In addition, Family therapy can be a great addition to treatment, especially for teens, young adults, and individuals who are living with family or seeking support for family members to understand and better support the individual struggling. Another treatment for eating disorders is a modified version of DBT that adds an additional module that covers eating disorders. So in addition to therapeutic treatment, there's a refeed process that occurs during treatment in order to stabilize blood pressure, electrolytes, nutrients, and just like, let's say to get get to a healthier weight. They call it refeed. Sometimes people call it by other names. Really, what they're trying to do is get get people's weight up, right? You have to, if if you have anorexia, even bulimia, binge eating disorder, what have you, you need to be able to refeed the body the nutrients it needs so that it can stabilize again. Many residential treatment centers or facilities offer these supports and more. Unfortunately, as many of you may already know, it's often difficult to get an insurance company to pay for this kind of treatment. There is no answer that I can give for this that makes logical sense. And things have gotten better over the last 10 years or so, so I feel like we can just continue to advocate for ourselves so things can continue to improve and that more people can gain access to the appropriate levels of treatment. When I struggled with my eating disorder, I lived in a big city in Philly. 
I was fortunate to have received treatment at the Renfrew Center. Now, this was like, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago or so. And so I'm speaking from the way things were then, which is very important. But I will say that of all of the places that I had gone to and the treatments that I had received, Renfrew was actually the best place that I had been to. At the time, had you asked me that, I would not have expressed that same sentiment. But the reality is, is if I had never stayed there a few times, I wouldn't have had all the seeds planted that were planted to help with this journey. Treatment at Renfrew consisted of receiving nutrition plans, so having a nutrition, a nutritionist, and then you would get a plan and there would be consequences for not being willing to eat the meal. Or if you engage in food rituals, there were also consequences for that. Consequences were that you would receive a supplement like Insure, which if you have an eating disorder, you really don't want to be drinking an Insure because you know that that has a lot of calories and sometimes more so than the meal. So it was something that they were trying to do to not necessarily punish. That wasn't the goal. It's just that their job or their goal there was to help you stabilize and get your body back to a place where it's healthy. So they would really need you to have those nutrients. So the inshore was more like a consequence in the minds of, you know, the women, you know, the people there. Um, And it was all women at the time. So women is why I said that. There are treatment centers um, even now that are, that do accept all genders, whatever you identify as. So the other thing that Renfrew did is they had these checks, like every day they'd wake you up very early in the morning, like 5, 6 a.m., sometimes 4 a.m., if I'm remembering that correctly, and you would get vitals every day. So they would take your blood pressure, you'd have to go down and get weighed, um, and then you would get your medication daily. So, of course, then there was psychiatric care, and you saw your psychiatrist there once a week more if you needed to. There was family therapy, individual therapy, and group therapy. There were CBT groups, DBT groups, mindfulness groups, trauma groups around safety and containment. I remember doing art therapy groups and healthy fitness groups. So once your body became healthier, you were able to attend a fitness group What started your body out with gentle walking and learning how to resist the urge to over-exercise. As you can see, Renfrew offered a little bit of a lot of things. They even believed that eating disorders and addictions share similar traits and had us go to AA. That's very important because what they would tell us a lot is that, you know, people who have an addiction, like let's say alcohol addiction or substance abuse, the substance can be removed from their lives when they're ready and they've had appropriate treatment. But with food, that's not the same. You can't take food away. Food is something that sustains you. And so they would have us go to AA so that we can identify with that kind of addiction and then start to really accept that this is something that's very similar to that. So a place like Renfrew is ideal. You're getting a little bit of a lot. You know, it, there are pros and cons. I know in the earlier season, I talked about how I loved it there so much. And that was a con, but that was something that was you know, unique maybe to me. Maybe it was something that other people experienced as well, but it's not a reason to shy away from a facility like that because it can really help stabilize you medically. 
And even though I didn't receive specific treatment for borderline personality disorder because no one told me that they had diagnosed me with it at the time, I was still getting DBT, mindfulness, safety and containment, trauma, how to deal with flashbacks, and they had counselors that were so well-trained. It was awesome. So what was the downside? For me, it was really hard to be in treatment because I didn't look like I had an eating disorder. That's actually actually a listener question I'm going to ask, um, answer, excuse me, a little later on. But I didn't look like it. So, I mean, I wasn't very underweight. And this is just, you know, something that you can say that in an emotional way because, you know, a lot of individuals diagnosed with anorexia, right? One of the things is that they feel like they look bigger or are bigger than they actually are. Oh, but I was at a weight that was appropriate for my height in comparison to other people my age, and I had a diagnosis of bulimia. So I was, I was though, unfortunately, medically unstable because my way of purging was over-exercising and taking too much synthetic thyroid hormone. Um, so... I was sick. My body was sick and it was really hurt wearing on me and I was having, you know, it was life-threatening because I was hurting my heart with the medication. So I didn't look like I had an eating disorder, but I still needed that refeed. However, the refeed made me really uncomfortable because I just kept internalizing like, oh, great, like I don't even need to eat more. I'm going to have to gain weight like this is awful. So it was a roadblock for me. And some of the stuff they put on your meal plan were like donuts and pizza. And I just couldn't understand how eating donuts and pizza was supposed to help me at the time. But I get what they're trying to do in retrospect. They're trying to do exposure to get you used to eating foods that you wouldn't otherwise feel comfortable with. And they need to give you calories at first to help stabilize your weight. Because like I said earlier... We don't know or we didn't know when the insurance company was going to say, oh, you have to leave. Some girls had to leave, you know, the next day. They were like right, you know, through like a breakthrough. I mean, it was pretty rough depending on the insurance company. So, yeah, that was something that, you know, you had to deal with. So if you're like eating donuts and pizza and these higher calorie foods, you're getting that exposure. If you can only be there a few days or a week or so versus a month or three weeks to a month. And so I understood that at the time. But I will say that for me, when I was in treatment, I really couldn't stop thinking about food and not in the way that it was before I left. You know, I, I'm, I the more I found out of my, about myself over the years and like what I know about myself now, I realized that all the gluten, sugar, and dairy that I was eating actually made it harder for me to recover there because I have a sensitivity to those foods. And no, it's not disordered. If I eat a donut, I can't stop thinking about donuts. I've told you about Oreos, things like that. So I start this cycle in my mind of like becoming sort of obsessive about carbs and sugar. But I found that if I eat meats and veggies and healthy foods and gluten-free or paleo snacks, even donuts, like gluten-free donuts, I don't have the same level of craving for those foods. So eating a donut for lunch or dinner made me want more and more, and everyone in treatment seemed to dread the next meal, whereas it was all I could think about. So that stunk, honestly. And there is this uh, dynamic between you know, people with eating disorders or there was in the community I was in that, you know, you want to like, it's like, if you're the sickest, you know, then you're getting the most attention. 
So like being sick is something that you actually would want. And also it's such a great community of women that if you say that you're not sick or you are doing well, well, then the psychiatrist is likely not going to try to push through that insurance document that says that you could stay. So, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, funny thing. I think if you're actually in there, it's interesting for me to talk about it now, but that's just the truth. Um, so there are some pros and cons to eating disorder treatment and, you know, just to give you a heads up of what you want, what you might be dealing with. The bottom line with the donuts and the calorie, the high calorie foods was one, this is just something they did at the Renfrew Center. There are other places and organizations that eliminate sugar and white flour and gluten and dairy, knowing that that's part of the issue. I had a friend who I'd gone to Renfrew with, and then she went to this place. I think it was in upstate New York at the time. And she had much more success there, which is when I kind of got, had gotten the idea in my head that I should start trying to figure that out as well. That whole, you know, eliminating gluten and dairy and weed and seeing if I had um, addiction or allergies to other foods. So you would get your vitals, go to group. Um, they would have you busy just all day. And you're just, again, very supported. And you're eating your meals. If you don't eat your meals, you're going to get supplemented with an inshore. And, you know, you're, you're, they bring your family in. And another thing I really liked about Renfrew is that they had um, this family group where everyone's families could come. I think it was on like a Sunday morning. And you would say your name, introduce yourself, and we would have this like really uh, awesome open forum where they would teach the parents and the kids together, individuals, excuse me, together, how to communicate with each other, which was so cool because they did it in a community setting. They were appropriate. Boundaries were, you know, drawn, lines were drawn. So they really did try to give this full uh, treatment for eating disorders. And... I think that that kind of program is ideally what you would want. And if you have borderline personality disorder, finding, you know, a place that has that kind of treatment, even if they're not saying, oh, this is what we're doing for BPD, this is, these are the modules of DBT, and we're just going to talk about BPD here, um, they are still going to give you treatment that relates to that if you're willing to open your mind to it. Because honestly, CBT does help. As I get further along with people as they go through recovery, I do talk to them a little bit about CBT and changing their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors because it's helpful. So if you do go to treatment for just an eating disorder, but they do offer this sort of varied level of services and different types of treatment, if you open your mind, you will be able to gain some information that will help jumpstart your journey, even though you're not going specifically for BPD. So if I had never gone to Renfrew, I would not probably have gone for my master's degree. I had this uh, counselor, Stacy. She was just so sweet, you know, and I remember how unconditionally kind she was no matter how I acted. And my mom would come and visit me a lot and it was uh, difficult for me at the time. I wasn't a very forgiving person. So whenever my family would come, I would get angry. And so she was just always there. So it was a very supportive, wonderful environment. So that's my experience with eating disorder treatment in terms of inpatient. Now, like I said, as time had passed over the years, I had to learn to figure that out, quote unquote, on my own. 
after my last time in treatment, I stopped engaging in like really extreme eating disorder behaviors. So I had a clinical eating disorder, meaning I met criteria for an eating disorder and for treatment. And it's changed and shifted to a subclinical eating disorder. So I was still doing things that were inappropriate, like checking my body, taking pictures of myself, et cetera, like changing my clothes frequently, things like that. But it didn't, it wasn't something when I was discharged the last time that was kind of overcoming my mind and overcoming my brain. Um, so I learned that I needed to start this path of loving myself, loving my body and choosing foods that made me feel good. And that's how I ended up sort of overcoming the like initial intensity of disordered eating. So I will say that having, you know, receiving treatment for an eating disorder and for borderline personality disorder, because there are so many overlaps. It's imperative that you seek out support for either one of these. And if you're out there and you're a family member and you're listening to try to help your loved one, just remember that there, you know, it's not very, it's not as simple as like just eat or just stop or you have no self-control, you know, and I know a lot of those things can get said, you know, or you look fine to me. Um, or I had a listener who wanted me to ask a question about or answer a question, and it wasn't really a question. It was more like, could I educate people about body size and eating disorders? Like, you oftentimes, like, you can't look at someone and say, oh, they have an eating disorder. I mean, with anorexia, that can be true at times. But there are also times where, you know, we really wouldn't know just by looking at someone. So it's important that you gently encourage the individual to seek help in the event that they may be struggling with an eating disorder and validate their struggle, not the way they look, not commenting on the food they're eating, not pointing out the rituals that they're engaging in or the inappropriate behaviors they may be engaging in. Sometimes people think that disordered eating is all about control. And I have mentioned that before. And, you know, as time passes, things like checking your body and taking pictures of yourself and changing your clothes and, you know, it, it is in part due to control and identity. But when you're at the point where you're seeking treatment because you're medically unstable, that's not it. Once people get started with disordered eating behaviors, it really becomes difficult to stop because it is addictive. Not just the way that I spoke about food and addiction, but the behaviors themselves, they're addictive. So they need support to stop engaging in these behaviors and they need a new path to start off into recovery and then ongoing treatment, you know, to help them with that sort of like addictive nature of the eating disorder. And I think later on in life for people who are struggling with that subclinical that goes tiptoes into that clinical domain of eating disorder or disordered eating. You know, my belief, and this is more a personal belief, is that it becomes like a method of having an identity. So if I'm freaking out about something, let's say, and I'm the kind of person who will, you know, when I get anxious or when I feel uncomfortable in my body, maybe today I wake up and I'm like, oh, gosh, my, my jeans are tighter than they were yesterday. And, or I get on the scale and then my jeans are automatically tighter because the scale says that they should be. 
right? Then I spend the rest of my day, maybe hours changing my clothes, changing my clothes, and then I never get to an activity, that kind of thing. That in part is something that's done, you know, to in order to prevent having to develop an identity, especially if you have the wherewithal to, you know, stop hurting yourself and things like that. And you're just sort of engaging in that checking behavior. So what I like to do with folks who are in that stage is start to replace some of those behaviors with more functional behaviors and not letting go of all of them at once, but really just starting to break out and do things that are difficult that make that build confidence so that they can see that they are able, that they are able, ready, willing, and able, let's say, and also worthy of living a life of health, of, you know, nutritional health and just like exercise for the point of exercise and not for that, you know, sort of obsessive exercise pattern. So that's about all I have today in terms of treatment for eating disorders. So if you have any more questions, like I said before, you can send them in and please stay tuned for a Q&A. All right, so this question comes from someone on the Facebook group, and I'm just going to read it now. I used intermittent fasting and keto to lose weight, but I had to be obsessive about it, and the fasting I did was on the side of extreme. I decided to do OMAD and some longer fasts as well. I found all kinds of health benefits to justify what I was doing, but I think I enjoyed being able to be so strict with myself about something for once. It's so hard to feel in control sometimes. It was nice while it lasted. I still want to go back to that way of eating, but I don't want to do it in a self-harming way, which I have to recognize I have the potential to do. I also stress eat at times. I was really good about not doing that for a while, but the tendency seems to be reappearing as I have just started therapy and I'm trying to be accountable for my actions. So thank you so much for posting that. That's not necessarily a question, but I can speak on that a little bit. I'm a lot of people ask me, you know, what is disordered eating? Lots of people do diets, right? Like intermittent fasting is something that people do, right? And they post videos about it on TikTok, on Instagram, right? Keto too. It's something that's, you know, people talk about like the South Beach diet was a thing at one point in time. So maybe the question one is when is it too much. Well, with anything in life, there's we have to practice moderation first, right? So that's how you know that it's too much. Meaning if you are uh, thinking about intermittent fasting and planning your keto meals and measuring and weighing and your food and yourself, and it becomes something that consumes you and it prohibits you from engaging in activities of daily living, then it is absolutely something that I would consider seeking support and treatment and help for. If you're doing intermittent fasting and you see health benefits and you continue to do it, and then one day you go on vacation and you want to have breakfast and you decide you're just going to eat breakfast and you're not obsessing about the fact that you ate breakfast, then it becomes more of like sort of a balance, right? But it's hard to tell for a clinician, family member, and maybe even for some individuals out there struggling whether or not their behaviors are disordered or whether or not they're just engaging in healthy behaviors because there's a lot of covert rationalizations that happen. 
not just with the BPD mind, but with individuals who have eating disorders and perhaps maybe don't have that additional diagnosis. What I mean by that is I've had people tell me that they are vegan. Now, lots of people go, you know, and become vegan for all kinds of reasons. And one of them is health benefits, caring about animals, the environment, right? Those are a few of them, actually. So if someone comes to me and they say that's why they're vegan, but then I find out through sort of like sessions and kind of just talking to them that they are actually vegan because that's how they can take in the least amount of calories and they're only eating maybe chickpeas, right? Then we have to have a conversation about whether or not the rationalizations they've created for becoming vegan is actually something that perpetuates the eating disorder, the disordered eating. So if you have this need or this, let's say, impulse or impulsive drive to engage in dieting behaviors that harm your body and that you're taking to a new level, then addressing that in therapy and coming up with coping skills that are positive going to be incredibly important. I come from a little bit of a different perspective because I had been taught when I was in treatment that it is not okay to diet. Your body has a set point. You shouldn't work out past a certain limit or for more than a certain amount of time and that you should not, you know, do something like intermittent fasting or you shouldn't, you know, eat paleo, right? Because that perpetuates an eating disorder. And for me, I strongly urge you to come up with what you believe your answer is with the help of a skilled clinician. Sometimes we can't do that on on our own, to be honest. It's hard to see those covert rationalizations. However, if you just take that, if I would have just taken that advice, then I might not have ever tried paleo. But for me, not eating paleo leads me to binge eat sweets and sugary foods and things like that. So if I'm not at least 80% paleo, I feel myself like spiraling. And I mean, I'm happy. I feel like I have a great life. And, you know, I'm definitely not in this dark place where I feel the need to engage in these things. But my brain will tell me otherwise. No, you need to have six donuts, seven donuts. You need to stop at Dunkin' Donuts. You need to get munchkins. I mean, and that will just kind of spiral. So to me, You know, if I eat in a certain way like paleo, that's not a covert rationalization for me. That's more my choice because it becomes so overwhelming to have those thoughts of sugar and donuts and things like that. So I just found that I was able to eliminate that and get there. But it sounds like the individual who wrote that Facebook post is struggling with control and with emotional eating and stress eating. And again, you know, in recovery, things take time. So a few things. One, if you're in therapy or in coaching and you end a session and things are coming out that's difficult, uncomfortable for you to deal with, one, I would give yourself grace. Accept that it's going to be difficult and maybe you might engage in a maladaptive coping strategy and I hope you don't hurt yourself in doing that. And I want you to then go to your clinician, express to them what happened so that you can develop good distress tolerance skills and adaptive positive coping skills that you can try to replace with some of those other behaviors to stop that pattern of 
trying to use food to feel good or to use those um, disordered eating behaviors to feel good. listening that was from borderline the beautiful a production of skeeter's strength mindset coaching systems we help frustrated individuals resentful couples and disconnected families navigate through tough times visit us on the web at skeeterstrength.com if you like this show remember you can hear it on anchor or apple podcasts or pocket cast or any app you use to listen to podcasts subscribe to get a new episode every monday Next time on the show, we're going to continue our eating disorder series. If you want to get in touch, you can leave me a voice message. Some of you had some comments and questions from last episode, so let's hear them. I'd love to hear whatever questions you have too. Just download that Anchor mobile app, search for From Borderline to Beautiful, and tap the message button to send me a voice message. So... If you like this podcast, not only can you download that Anchor app, but you can help us get this message out to so many more people. Head over to Apple and offer us that five-star rating and let me know what you're thinking about some of our material. The more stars and higher rating we get, the more people will have access to From Borderline to Beautiful, hope and help for individuals with BPD. 